ओम गुरु ब्रह्मा गुरु विष्णु गुरुदेव महेश्वरा गुरुरेव पराब्रह्मस्मै श्री गुरुवे नमः ओम स्थापकाय चर्मस्य सर्वधर्मस्वरूपिणे अवतारवरिष्ठाय रामकृष्णाय धे नमः Today, well first, bah, the music is <laughs> very awesome and it's very fitting. Today is the Jayanti of Swami Brahmananda, direct disciple of Sri Ramakrishna. He's considered the spiritual son of Sri Ramakrishna. And actually, he was very fond of music and later in life, he always surrounded himself with very good musicians. So it's very fitting. He loved bhajans, he loved music. So for his birthday, this is very, very nice. Very auspicious. So, <clears throat> because of this, we thought that today we talk a little bit about him and, uh, and talk about some of his teachings, a little bit f- about from his life. And I guess the, the lives of the saints are always, always inspiring. And um, so we'll go mainly, if we have time, we'll do a little bit from this guide to spiritual life. This is his, mostly his teachings, translated by Swami Chaitanandaji. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, for the beginning, for the most part, will be um, excerpts, read, just mainly reading and talking a little bit about from uh, the book called The Eternal Companion. This was, um, <clears throat> it has a biography and some of his teachings, question and answers. Uh, it was uh, written by Swami uh, Prabhavananda. He was the, the head of the Hollywood Vedanta Society and he, in the early days and for, many, for decades. And um, he was Swami Brahmananda's disciple. So it's very, very inspiring. It has a one, the, the, the book itself is a good eternal companion. It's an incredible... So we'll read a little bit. So first, kind of uh, a little bit about his background. Again, taken from the biography that Swami Prabhupada Ji wrote. <coughs> so Swami Brahmananda, he was born on the 21st of January in 1863 in a village called Shikra, which is near Calcutta. His father was Ananda Mohan Ghosh and his mother was Kailash Kamini. So Kailash, uh, his mother, she was a, a Krishna Bhakta and Brahmananda was, his, was her only son. And so she names him Rakhal which means shepherd boy, because she was so devoted to Krishna. But she passes away when Rakhal is only five years old. Now, as a little boy, uh, Rakhal, uh, he would, Rakhal, he would make, he would, with his friends, he would go and he would go and with clay, he'd play and he'd make little images of Divine Mother and he would be pujari and he would worship and he and his friends would do puja to the little images he would make of Ma. And then during the festivals, like Durga Puja, he would always sit behind the pujari. And the pujari would always, you know. So he'd always be there, right behind. Sometimes he'd just sit there in deep contemplation while the pujari was doing the puja. <coughs> as you mentioned, he was a great lover of music. He loved, as even as a child, to sing bhajans and kirtan. He also loved gardening. He got that from his father. And even in Belamat, he had a little garden, and that was part of part of his daily routine was to garden. It was a very, even that was for him was very con- contemplative. And so, <clears throat> Rakhal finished 
the village primary school, and then he went to Calcutta for grammar school. And this was he was around twelve years old. And um, while he's there, he next to adjoining the school is an athletic club, and all the young boys are members. And so he goes and he he joins. And there's one young boy there, about his age, named Naren. And this is how. Rakal and Naren, who would become Swami Vivekananda, this is how they met at the athletic club. And so, of course, even then, as, a, as the, the young 12-year, 13-year-old, um, Naren, out of the group of boys in the athletic Naren was the leader. He was, all had these leadership qualities. So he was leading, so Rakal and him became very close friends. And then both of them joined the Brahmo Samaj. <coughs> so... Um, Again, we've been reading uh, and going through for the past few weeks and all that, going through the Sri Sri Ramakrishna Katamrit. And we're on the, on the chapter right now, the, 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 the part of Volume 1, where they're describing the boat ride with Keshav Sen and Vijay Goswami and all of their disciples. We talked about that last week. Um, actually, Rakal and Narendra weren't there on that boat ride. M was there. But um, I just wanted to kind of invoke the beginning of that whole section because it's it's always nice to get a sense of the the world that these boys were in in Calcutta at that time and so the way Keshab uh, affected he really affected the youth I mean M almost so many of the direct disciples came from Keshab's uh, group and Keshab was the first to publicly uh, glorify Sri Ramakrishna, you know, publicly. And actually, as a result of that, many of, like, well, oh, who is this Sri Ramakrishna? So they would come to the Dakshineshwar, and they became coming in, in, in great groups to Dakshineshwar to see Sri Ramakrishna. And it's interesting, though, because they were so different. But it's interesting to see how they're contrasted, Keshab and Sri Ramakrishna, because those two influences really did, I mean, ultimately, Ramakrishna became the dominant influence and tra completely transformed their lives and opened them, opened up their divine lives. They were already divine to begin with. Ramakrishna called them all the, the ever-perfect. People like Rakal and Naren, they were like the Homa bird, uh, mentioned in the Vedas. The Homa bird that lays her eggs in the sky and she's flying so high up that as the egg falls, it hatches and the little baby chick comes out. And it's still so high up, it continues to fall. And as it's falling, it sprouts wings. And as it's falling, it begins to sprout those wings, and it realizes, as it continues to fall, that, oh my gosh, the ground is coming very quickly. And so realizing that, before it ever has a chance to hit the ground, it spreads its wings and flies up to its mother, high up in the sky. And yet these boys were like that. They're, they were born perfect. After a few years, then, you know, the, the, what's already in them wakens up and they go quickly to God. So that's, this is the type. So, um, but to, again, to give a chance to see M, when they get onto the boat, and M, this is the first time that M, um, uh, so Sri Ramakrishna comes on this little, kind of like a little rowboat, to meet in the big steamship that where Keshav is waiting. And M is standing on the deck, and he sees Sri Ramakrishna and Vijay Goswami, who had been in Sri Ramakrishna's room, uh, they're coming up in the little boat to meet and to get onto the, the steamship. And 
that whole first chapter, if you recall, just shows it's M. He's on the on the deck, and he sees Sri Ramakrishna coming in the boat, and Sri Ramakrishna just goes into samadhi as he's on this little boat coming to the ship. And that whole scene is described. It's just incredible. And M, he's very excited because he's been so influenced by Keshav. And so here's, they're going to meet Sri Ramakrishna. And so the two of them meeting for, in front of M for the first time, he's very curious. And so M writes that Keshav and his holy character and eloquent speeches has carried off the minds of many Bengali youths like himself. A great many, feeling him to be like their own dearest relative, have given him their heart's love. Keshab is an English-educated person and has learned English philosophy and literature. He has said many times that the worship of gods and goddesses is idolatry. This type of person has devotion and faith in Sri Ramakrishna and from time to time comes to have darshan. This is an astonishing matter indeed. Where or how their minds meet, M, Master, and refers to himself as master in the gospel, in the, in the Katamrit, like, like schoolmaster, because he was a schoolmaster. The master and the others have become very curious to penetrate this mystery. Thakur believes in God without form, but also God with form. He thinks of Brahman, he contemplates Brahman, and also worships before the image of gods and goddesses with flowers and sandalwood paste, and dances and sings wrapped in divine love. He sits on cots and beds, wears red-bordered cloths, shirts, socks, shoes, but he does not lead a domestic life. His mood is completely that of a sannyasa, and that is why people call him a paramahamsa. On the other hand, Keshab, he believes in God without form. He has a wife and children, leads a domestic life, gives lectures in English, writes articles for newspapers, and does worldly activities. So that's how M is describing how very different they were. But again, it's important to remember that so many people, boys like Rakal and Naren came to Sri Ramakrishna through Keshav. So, Rakal, he's, he plunges himself into prayer and contemplation, contemplation. And so as a result, his studies start slacking a little bit. And um, the studies start sliding. And so when he's around 16, his father, like most fathers are when their children are 16, is getting worried. And so he's like, his grades are, you know, not doing so well. And so he's thinking of all this, you know, prayer and all the It's the emotions of adolescence. That's what he chalks it up to. So what do you do? Get him married. Hi. So the girl's name, Vishweshwari. And um, as it turns out, so Vishweshwari's brother, Manmohan Mitra, and her mother, Shama Sundari, they were very devoted to Thakur, to Sri Ramakrishna. So, again, all these influences coming to Rakal are all pushing him to Thakur. So, one day, of course, as a good brother-in-law, who is devoted to Sri Ramakrishna, he wants to take his, uh, uh, he wants to take Rakal and take him by boat to meet Sri Ramakrishna. And so, we'll now jump to here. <coughs> So Shrami Prabhupanandaji writes and describes that first scene. For some time before the visit, the master had spiritual visions concerning his future disciple. Once Sri Ramakrishna prayed to the Divine Mother, Mother, I want someone to be my constant companion. 
Bring me a boy who is pure-hearted and intensely devoted to you. A few days later, he saw in a mystic vision a boy standing under a banyan tree in the temple grounds. On another occasion, the same boy appeared to him in a different manner. To quote Takor's own words, A few days before Rakhal came to me, mother placed a little boy on my lap and said, This is your son. At first I was startled. My son, mother smiled at this and made me understand that it was not that I was not to have a son in the ordinary sense, but that this boy would be my spiritual son, one who would live up to the highest ideals of renunciation. <clears throat> and from this hour onward, Ramakrishna waited eagerly for the coming of his spiritual son. A few moments before Rakhal actually arrived, Thakur had another vision. Suddenly he saw a hundred-petaled lotus blooming on the bosom of the Ganga, each of its petals shining with exquisite loveliness. On the lotus, two boys were dancing with anklets on their feet. One of them was Sri Krishna himself. The other was the same boy he had seen in his earlier vision. Their dance was indescribably beautiful. Every movement they made seemed to splash foam, as it were, from an ocean of sweetness. Sri Ramakrishna was lost in ecstasy. Just then, the boat arrives, carrying Manmohan and Rakhal. Sri Ramakrishna looked at Rakhal in bewilderment. What is this? He thought to himself. Here's the boy I saw standing under the banyan tree. Here's the boy mother placed in my lap. Here's the boy I saw just now dancing on the lotus with Sri Krishna. This is the pure-hearted companion I prayed to mother for. Sri Ramakrishna regarded Rakhal for a few moments, silently. Then, smiling, he remarked to Man Mohan, There are wonderful possibilities in this boy. After this, the master talked to Rakhal for some time, as though he were an old friend. What is your name? he asked. Rakhal answered. Rakhal Chandra Ghosh. Hearing the name Rakhal, Sri Ramakrishna was deeply excited and muttered to himself, Rakhal, the shepherd boy of Vrindavan, the playmate of Sri Krishna. Then, in a sweet and affectionate voice, he said, Come and see me again. In the presence of Thakur, Rakhal had experienced a peculiar feeling of joy, love, and intense attraction. As he left the temple grounds, that voice in all its sweetness kept echoing within his heart, Come and see me again. He knew that at last he had met a man who had seen and known God. <clears throat> it reminds me of the Seen when M first visits and has a, a long talk with Sri Ramakrishna. And at the end, Sri Ramakrishna says, Oh, come again. And those words are echoing in M's, M's mind and in his heart. He said, Come again. I need to come again. Do you see? So, so Rakhal begins to come very often to Dakshinishwar. And pretty soon he's spending days on end there. Many, many days. So, naturally his studies are not improving because of this. So, so the father comes. He comes to Dakshinishwar. And Rakhal becomes very frightened. He goes and hides. But Thakur tells him, No, you go and meet him at the gate. At the gate of Dakshinishwar. You go and meet him. And you be respectful. So, Rakhal goes to the gate. Picks up his courage. 
He goes to the gate. He meets his father. He's very polite. He touches his father's feet and very respectful. And the father is so taken aback. He's never seen recall like this. You know, the father right there at the gate, he has a change of heart. And so as he goes, he goes and he meets Takor and he, and he, he, and he goes with Rakal and he agrees, he can stay, let him stay. Just let him occasionally see me. You know, just visit me sometimes, but he can stay here. He's just right there, you know, a little, so children, a little politeness and respect to your parents <laughs> is in order. No, but um, no, that was, I love that scene. Though. But keep in mind, he's still married. So, <clears throat> two years pass in this holy company with Thakur, and he, he's living such an intensely spiritual life, he forgets all about his duties to his young wife. So Shamasundri, his mother-in-law, um, she understands him, because she's a devotee of Thakur, so she understands him. And she knows how pure and devoted to God, Rakal is. And so she's training her daughter to be a worthy wife. Uh, a neighbor w once said to Shamasundri, it seems your son-in-law is turning into a monk. Why don't you try to bring his mind back to the world for your daughter's sake? What can I do? Shamasundri answered. Everything depends on the will of the Lord. If my son-in-law becomes a monk, I shall regard it as a great blessing. So not long after that, Shamasundri, she comes with her daughter, she visit Rakal, and ask him to return home. So the meeting takes place in the presence of Takur. But throughout the whole thing, Takur doesn't say a thing. He remains silent. So later Takur described it to other disciples. He says, Rakal has now reached true spiritual discrimination. I know he will no longer be attached to the world. He has realized the emptiness of earthly pleasures. But Takur, he feels that he still he has a duty to his wife. And so he told, tells her to visit her from time to time. And Rakal obeyed. Gradually his visits to his wife became longer. He felt concerned about her and, and about her future. Finally he came to Sri Ramakrishna and he asked advice. And so Takur listened to everything he had to say, but he didn't give any any, he didn't tell him definitely what to do. And which path of life he should follow. So with a very heavy heart, recall he goes back to his wife, but inside he's quietly praying to Sri Ramakrishna, praying to Thakur, to show him the way. And so three days pass. And recall, <coughs> he's praying all the time. But then suddenly something happened, and Ma... She does, you know, she can put the veil and take away the veil. That's all, you know. So all of a sudden, he knows for himself which path he needs to follow. And so he and his wife, he knows they're not to be bound by the ties of marriage. So he has, he has, this, he knows that he has this great mission to fulfill, and he was very certain now that his wife would be taken care of. And by mother's grace, strange as it seems, by mother's grace, she also felt completely full of peace. That's a huge, huge thing. And so he takes leave of her, <coughs> and he goes straight back to Dakshineshwar. And the master, Takur, he knows exactly what has happened. And so, with a silent smile, he welcomes home his beloved spiritual son. So, 
<clears throat> now, Sri Ramakrishna <coughs> was very much a devotee of truth. He, he, he very much, he, he said, if there's, he, he said, if there's one thing you can do in the Kali Yuga, just stick to the truth. If you can just stick to the truth, you can realize God. Truth for him, it, it was so important to him that if he said, I need to go to the pine grove to relieve myself, and then all of a sudden, oh, he didn't have to go to the bathroom. He would, he would go to the pine grove and he would stay there until he went to the bathroom. Because I said, I need to go to the bathroom, and I can't leave until I go to the bathroom. He would, if it was two hours, he would wait until he had to go, and then he'd, then he'd come back. And one time, it was, there was one, I think it was, um, Daru Malak, who lived very close to Dakshineshwar, just almost on the other side of the wall. And Sri Ramakrishna had said, I'll go to your house today. And so the whole day went by, very busy at Dakshineshwar, and Sri Ramakrishna forgot. And then in the middle of the night, Sri Ramakrishna wakes up. <gasps> I said that I would go to his house, and I didn't. And so in the middle of the night, he gets up, and he walks across the courtyard, he walks out the gate, and he walks over, he goes to Jadu Malik's house, he opens the door, he puts his foot in, and then closes the door and leaves and goes back to the Because he, he said it, he, you have to stick to truth. That's how serious Sri Ramakrishna was about truth. So one day, Sri Ramakrishna, <coughs> he says to Rakal, I can't look at you. I see a veil of ignorance over your face. Tell me, have you done anything wrong? So Rakal was greatly troubled. No matter how hard he tried, he couldn't remember having done anything wrong. Try to recall, Sri Ramakrishna says to him. If you have, have you told any untruth? Rakal at once remembered, and he did admit that he recently he told a lie as a part of a joke, you know, <laughs> to a friend. It was part of, so, and then Sri Ramakrishna he forgave him. But he said, never do it again. To speak the exact truth always is a most important spiritual discipline. <clears throat> so recall, <clears throat> he's very enthusiastic about his spiritual life. And his enthusiasm didn't weaken. But after a while, he stopped meditating regularly. And Sri Ramakrishna noticed this. And he asked him the reason. Recall, an recall answered, I don't always get the inspiration. My heart seems dry and I feel an emptiness. So Sri Ramakrishna says, you must never neglect your meditation on that account. Make up your mind to practice spiritual disciplines, then enthusiasm will come naturally. Those who are farmers by birth and occupation do not and cannot give up farming just because the crops fail. So you must not give up meditation even though you may not get any apparent results. You must be regular in your practice. So that on that same day, Sri Ramakrishna, he goes at usual to worship at the temple. And Rakhal followed him and sat down to meditate in the hall facing the shrine. Suddenly, he saw the shrine was growing luminous. And it increased until it was as bright as the sun, but not blinding. And this light began to pour through the door of the shrine and seemed to engulf Rakhal. He was on the verge of losing consciousness. The sensation frightened him. He got up and went out. Later, Sri Ramakrishna found him silently in his room, sitting there. Why did you run away? Thakur asked. 
You complain that your heart is dry and you don't have any more spiritual visions, yet you are afraid to experience anything? That's not right. So a few days later, Rakal is sitting absorbed in meditation in the hall of the temple. And he's very ecstatic. Tramakrishna approaches him. He himself is in ecstasy. And he gives him a special mantra. Look, says Thakur, there is your Ishta Devata, your chosen ideal. And recall, in ecstatic vision, he saw his chosen ideal of God standing right before him, living and luminous with a smile on his lips. When Rakal regained his external consciousness and he saw Sri Ramakrishna, he prostrated at his feet with loving devotion. He had known and experienced the divine power and grace of his Guru. And Sri Ramakrishna returned to his room and Rakal became much, once more absorbed in meditation. <clears throat> so, Rakal stays there for, you know, some time, for, he continues for a long time. And then Rakal starts, Rakal starts to get sick. And so Sri Ramakrishna, there's one great householder devotee, Balaram Bose, and all the young boys were very fond of him, and he, was, he very much served Sri Ramakrishna and, um, and his devotees, especially the young boys. And so Thakur entrusts Balaram, you take care of this boy, you serve him like God. You take care of him and serve him. And so he goes to Balarambose's house in Calcutta to try to you know, regain his health. But Balaram finds that the climate in Calcutta isn't so good and his health isn't improving. So with Ramakrishna's permission, he says, well, why I'll take him to Vrindavan. So they go, they go, uh, Rakhal and Balaram, they go to Vrindavan and they stay. And at first, Rakhal is, he loves Vrindavan. This is so beautiful. He talks about, oh, the sound of the peacocks is so beautiful. And the air is so clear. And the name, the, the divine name just flows naturally. He's just completely happy. And then he gets really, really sick. <laughs> he starts to get better. And then he gets really sick. And he, Balaram and Back in Kolkata, Shamakrishna gets worried. So, Shamakrishna, as he describes it himself, I prayed to the Divine Mother for his recovery. He has renounced everything, and he depends entirely on me. When he first went to Vrindavan, he wrote back to M, Mahendranath Gupta, saying how wonderful the place is and how the peacocks are dancing around, but now those peacocks seem to hold no charm for him. Why do I love these boys so much? Because their hearts are so pure. So he comes back to Calcutta. And when he comes back, he finds that, oh, some of his, there's a lot more devotees coming. And a lot of his friends from school are there. <coughs> more friends. And, um, but, so he's getting better. But then he, that's when people begin to notice Ramakrishna's health is not doing so well. And so this is the beginning of Sri Ramakrishna's illness. And eventually he goes to the Koshipur garden house. And um, as Swami Prabhupada Ji writes, he says that Thakur was undoubtedly a very sick man, but he still remained the source and center of a strong spiritual current, 
which transformed the lives and characters of those around him. The Koshipur garden house became a place of bliss, and the disciples' hearts overflowed with joy in God. It was during this period that Sri Ramakrishna prepared Naren to deliver his message to mankind. He taught him how to train the young disciples and organize the monastic order. Every day he would talk to Naren for hours. Every day, uh, um, and in the course of one of these conversations, he told Narendra, Rakhal, Rakhal has the keen intelligence of a king. If he chose, he could rule a kingdom. Taking the hint, and understanding that Thakur wanted Rakhal to be their leader, Naren lost no time in bringing this about. One day, when all the young disciples were seated together, Naren spoke of Rakhal's greatness and announced, From today, we shall call Rakhal our king. The others agreed, gladly, knowing the special love that Thakur had for Rakhal. And so thus, from that day, they called him Raja, the king. And later on, both disciples and devotees began to call him Maharaj. When Sri Ramakrishna heard Rakhal's new name, he joyfully approved. And to this day, in the order, Swami Vivekananda is known as Swamiji. Swami Ramananda is known as Maharaj. Maharaj. Whenever you hear Maharaj, it's, oh, Maharajji, that's, that's, that's Swami Ramananda. They will sometimes refer to each other, you know, as Maharaj, as a sannyasin term, but if you, if you, Maharaj means Swami Brahmananda. So that's the origins of that. So after Sri Ramakrishna's passing, the boys, they want to plunge into sadhana. And, and so right now, the scene is that they're, they have no money. They're staying in Baranagor in a dilapidated, haunted house. They have one kopan between them. That's all they have. And so when they need to go out, they, they hang the kopan on the line, and the rest of the time they're just nagababas. And then if they need to go out and get food or beg food or go somewhere, the one who's leaving takes the kopan and goes. And that's all they had. Very rough, very, very difficult, austere times. <clears throat> and so they're there for some time. And then there's a the period, and I always... Whenever I read accounts of this period, it's very inspiring and very fascinating. Because now you know, we see the Ramakrishna mission is this huge established order. But in these early years, there they were. The direct disciples, these young boys who had no money. And how you know, this slowly the seeds were planted and slowly this came about. You know. So at one point, they all split up. They disperse. And they all go their own ways to wander. They all have the same drive. They want to go and just wander and beg for their food and, you know, do the very traditional sadhu life. So, Maharaj, he, um, uh, he also wants to go wander. And so, Swamiji, Swami Vivekananda, Narend, he knows his spiritual state, and he knows that he shouldn't go alone, because he, he could just go into samadhi, and just, you know, he needs someone to go with him. And so young Koka Maharaj, Swami Shubodhananda, he says, Shubodhananda, you go with him, and you serve him. And so he did. And so the two of them, Maha, uh, Swami Brahmananda and Swami Shubodhananda, go off together and start wandering. And they go to Panchavati, 
where, according to tradition, Ram and Sita stayed during their exile. And there, Maharaj, he has a vision of Ram and Sita. And they go on to Dwarka, <coughs> and they go back to Vrindavan, and they spend a long time in Vrindavan. And then, um, after some time, Swami Shubodananda, he also has the desire to like go and plunge himself into So he asks permission to take leave of Swami Brahmananda. He says, go. And so he goes to Hardwar, at the foothills of the Himalayas. So, let's go on. It's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. So left alone in Vrindavan, Swami Brahmananda, he had no time to feel lonely. For again he plunged into the consciousness of God. And then suddenly one day he sees in a vision, in a shining form, his devoted brother-disciple Balaram, the one who took care of him, Balaram Bose. And he's standing right before him. And his face has this beautiful heavenly smile. And gradually his form merged into the light of a divine realm. And the next day, Swami Brahmananda received the news that Balaram had passed away. And first he felt this pang of grief. Because he very, very much loved Balaram dearly. But then he realized that this sorrow was also a form of attachment. And so now, very strongly, he felt a desire to forget the things of the world and plunge deeper into that inner kingdom of God. So he leaves Vrindavan and he walks to Hardwar. Again, this is old school. And this, I love, this is, one of, I love these, again, I love these scenes. So they're all these young, these young sannyasins, sadhus wandering, taking Thakur's fire. And they just, I mean, they don't know what the future is, they don't know what's going to happen, they don't know there's going to be this huge Ramakrishna mission that will be, they don't know. Bamiji has not come to America, there hasn't been any brothers and sisters of America yet. He's not the great Hindu monk, no, he, no one knows. No one, they don't know. They don't know the future. And that's so this is why this is very, these early, you know, it's unformed. It's not, you know, nothing's, oh, I love this period. So now, now I picture, now they're in Hardwar. So he goes to Hardwar. So Swami Prabhupada writes, At Hardwar, Maharaj was overwhelmed by the grandeur and the beauty of the Himalayas and of the Ganga running its course at their feet. And two miles from Hardwar, is a quiet village of Kankal, sanctified by the presence of many sadhus belonging to various orders, who go there to lead contemplative lives. There, Maharaj settled in a little hut not far from the Ganga. And the present Ramakrishna mission, home of service, is now situated on that very spot in Kankal. It's a huge, they have a huge dispensary, a huge hospital, a huge, you know, a hospice. It's incredible, the service they do, but it started with Brahmananda in the little hut. Swami Vivekananda, Swami Turiyananda, Swami Sharadananda, Swami Shubodananda, and other monastic disciples of Thakur were then leading contemplative lives in Rishikesh. Just 
right down the road. So it was not long before they learned that Swami Brahmananda was in Kankal, and they all went to visit him. So Vivekananda, he wanted to go to Delhi, and he asked Maharaj and the rest of his brother disciples to accompany him. Maharaj could not refuse any wish of Swamiji's, but first he wanted to visit Swami Akandananda, another brother disciple who was living in Merut. So, to Merut, therefore, they all went, and they spent some memorable days in meditation and study, happy to be in one another's company. Then Swamiji left for Delhi alone. The rest then followed later. The lives of holy men, and especially their travels, must appear curiously aimless to the ordinary observer. Ever obedient to the voice of God within them, they make no fixed plans as, to, as worldly people do. All their intentions are subject to unexpected change. No sooner were the Swamis gathered in Delhi than Vivekananda told them that he must go on alone. The inner voice commanded him to seek solitude. We shall meet again when the Lord wills. He told his brother disciples as he said goodbye. So, Maharaj now asked Swami Turiyananda to accompany him on, on his pilgrimage. The Swami readily agreed, which pleased Maharaj very much, for Sri Ramakrishna had once told him to keep company with Brother Hari. That's his premonastic name, Swami Turiyananda. There's another inspiring you read the Swami Chaitananda translated Swami Turiyananda's letters. Spiritual Treasures is the name of that book. And it is very much spiritual treasures. That's the thing, it's like you could pick any one of the monastic disciples or any one of his householder disciples and you just study their life. And I'm convinced you could reach the goal. You could have God realization just in studying and meditating on their lives. But these young boys, wow. And you just think it's like, you know, people get impressed when they think of, oh, like when, you know, Einstein and, and you know, all these young you know, could have met, or oh, Hemingway and James Joyce in Paris, oh, they're all meeting, oh, that's really impressive. You know, they, they were all in Paris together. But this is Swami Turiyananda, Swami Brahmananda, Swami Shubodhananda, Swami V. Wow! I say, <laughs> that makes your hair stand on end. So, in Hari, Swami Turiyananda, devotion and knowledge were harmoniously developed. <clears throat> Deeply learned in the scriptures, he lived a life of great austerity and immaculate purity. At one point in the Himalayas, he was covered in ash with long jatta. Again, we see the, the you know, the pictures, they all have very, very you know, short hair, and they're all very, you know, they have, the, they're beginning to develop the Ramakrishna look. Now, whenever you see Ramakrishna Swami from a distance, you know he's a Ramakrishna Swami. They have like a, almost like a sadhu uniform. It's very, the kirta, the thing, the, the tint of the garawa, the, they have the, you know, the upper uh, hierarchy of the, they have the square hats. It's like you know a Ramakrishna monk when you see it. But in the beginning, jata, covered in ash, naked. You know, it's like they had many rupas. <clears throat> even Swamiji, he, he even said he longs to be, to be Naga sitting under a tree begging his food. And he sacrificed that rupa. He loves his great desire, and he sacrificed that for this work, for the mission. So, and we'll see how, how things change. So Rukhashan used to speak of him 
Sri Ramakrishna used to speak of Turiya, Turiyananda as a man of renunciation, strictly embodying the ideal of the Gita. So the two Swamis they now traveled together, mostly on foot, and they visited many sacred temples in the north. Turiyananda has told us, this is again Swami Prabhupada, Swami Ramananda's disciple, this is his writing, he writes the whole thing in first person, because these are his reminiscences, he, they, Swami Turiyananda, told him, Swami, so, he has told us, that whenever Maharaj entered any shrine, he would be filled with ecstatic devotion for that particular aspect of God, to which the temple was dedicated, and that ultimately he would have direct vision of the living deity within that temple. In later years, when Maharaj was asked by a disciple, if the gods and goddesses are real, he answered, the one Godhead has many spiritual forms, and all of these forms are real. A seer can see them and talk to them. It's like what Thakur said last week on the boat. She's real, and she talks to you. <laughs> she will give a command. After nearly two years of pilgrimage, so they arrive in Bombay, <clears throat> so now Swamiji uh, they, they meet at a devotee's house um, Kalipada Ghosh and Swamiji he's now so now as we get on the the timeline of history begins to intercept Swamiji is preparing for his first trip to the west to, the, to America and before embarking he's requesting he, he's, re, he's requesting to go and he was going to bless the newborn prince of Khetri. Ramananda and Turiyananda go out with him, and they go as far as the Abu Road station. And while he was with the prince, Swamiji, they go to Mount Abu, the beautiful Jain temple. A few days later, they return to the station and exchange a few words with Swamiji as his train passed through. The meeting was very short. Swamiji hastily told, tells, he tells Turiyananda, Go back to Baranagore Monastery. You are wanted there. Let Raja live alone. And Turiyananda had no time to explain to Swamiji that he couldn't leave Maharaj alone, just, not just then. His Brahmananda's spiritual consciousness was tuned up so high that he had no regard for his body and he couldn't look after it. So they remained together and the two of them returned to Mount Abu. And they just sat in contemplation. Turiyananda begged for his food and he watched over his brother just as Swami Shubodhananda had done. So after some time, Maharaj feels he sees the call back to Vrindavan. <clears throat> and here, Turiyananda, he experienced a mood of great joy. I am not going to beg any food today, he tells Maharaj. Let us see if Radha, Mother Radha, will feed us. And so they, sat, they sit down to meditate. Day and night passed, and they're just in bliss, without any consciousness of any hunger or any thirst. And the next morning, they rise from their meditation. They see a devotee approach them with quantities of food. By this time, they were both hungry, and they ate with great relish. <clears throat> and then, oh, this is after a few days in Vrindavan, then they go to Lake Kusum, which is very nearby the holy city. And on the lake shore, there are huts where the sadhus can pass their days in solitude and contemplation. So there the swamis lived for some months, completely forgetting the outside world. 
So then Swami Prabhupada writes, Swami Turiyananda told me of an interesting experience Maharaj had at Lake Kusum. For several nights in succession, he sat down. as he sat down to meditate, he was disturbed by peculiar noises and by the following of pebbles and dust around him. At length, Maharaj saw the spirit of a dead man standing before him. Why are you disturbing me like this? he asked. The spirit admitted that he had been trying to attract the Swami's attention. Throwing pebbles. He admitted he was trying to attract the Swami's attention and begged Maharaj to liberate him from his pitiful condition. Maharaj replied that he did not know how to do this. You are a holy man, the spirit told him. If you will just pray for my release, I shall be liberated. Maharaj did as he was asked. <clears throat> During the stay at Lake Kusum, Maharaj had the habit of rising at midnight and spending the rest of the night in meditation. One night, however, he felt tired and overslept. After a while, someone gave him a push and aroused him. At first, he thought it must be Swami Turiyananda. Then he saw a luminous figure in the dress of a Vaishnava saint standing beside him and counting his beads. After this, the figure appeared almost every night at midnight and joined him in his meditation. Later, in describing this incident to his disciples, Maharaj remarked, Many holy men, after leaving the physical body, live in the subtle spiritual bodies and help earnest religious aspirants in different ways. Yes. <clears throat> so towards the end of 1893 Turiyananda he receives a letter letter from a brother disciple uh, describing the incredible success that Swami Vivekananda is having in America and they're requesting him to come back to the monastery so now again now they're not Boranagore they moved from that place and now they're in Alambazar which is a small but very nice center. I've been there. It's it's a separate center. It's not. Um, it's run by a group of their disciples of uh, Swami Abedananda, and so they're kind of an independent of the Ramakrishna mission. But they keep it very. It's a beautiful place, and I sometimes picture Swami Vivekananda pacing back and forth on the upper veranda, you know, on the balcony, trying thinking of. Basically, that's where the Ramakrishna mission was created. You know, slowly, as they're, you can see, beginning to gather. After dispersed, being dispersed and wandering and doing, you know, very traditional sadhu, they're beginning to gather. And so, Alambazar is where they began to gather. And that's where Swami Vivekananda, like with the bylaws and all the stuff, that was where he was beginning to put it into place. And after, you know, also... He, he talks, Swami Vivekananda talks about how he agonized over the decision. Do we make an organization or do we not have any organization? If we make an organization, something will drop. Something will, you know, the quality, something will, once it's, once you organize it, it's, it's you know, it's become, you know, um, it loses something. Something is lost, something is gained. So he was really agonized. And I picture him on that balcony in Alambazar. Like, do we organize? I mean, if they don't organize, they risk the Shramakrishna and his message being lost. If there's no standard, if there's no, then whole, you know, it's just, 
you know, there's no way to um, uh, know what will happen to his message. You know, anyone can start quoting him anything. You know, the, so he really agonized over this. But and so I picture him there, the Alambazar Mat, you know, as Baylor Mat and the Ramakrishna Mission is slowly taking shape. So Turiyananda, he read the letters of the contents of the letter to Maharaj and asked for his advice. Maharaj agreed that he ought to return. Don't worry about me. <coughs> Go back to the monastery. You're needed there to do the work of the Lord. So unwillingly, Turiyananda, he took leave. And Maharaj remained in Vrindavan alone for one year. During this period, he sometimes took a vow not to ask for food or other necessities from anyone. Generally, an unknown devotee brought food to his door, but sometimes there would be days when he had nothing. Once, while he was sitting in silence, a stranger laid a warm new blanket beside him. A few moments later, another stranger came by and took the blanket away. <laughs> Maharaj sat still, smiling to himself as he watched the strange play of the Divine Mother. <clears throat> <coughs> during special festivities in honor of Sri Krishna. Brahmananda joined the devotees at a nearby temple. The crowd was chanting the name of God and singing Krishna's praises before the shrine. An aged holy man, a Vaishnava, was sitting on one, in one corner, counting his beads. Suddenly he turned to Maharaj and beckoned him to approach, indicating with affectionate gestures that he should sit down beside him. The two began to meditate, as Maharaj became absorbed, he felt the Vaishnava touch his head with his beads. He did this repeatedly, and each time, as Brahmananda received the saint's touched, touch, the hair on his body stood on end, and he experienced ecstasy. So then, after all this wandering, and all this sadhana, and all this, it says, Maharaj had achieved his aim. Now the state of samadhi was in his, as he as Prabhupada puts in his own possession. He had won it for himself, and he dwelt on it continually. All of them had wanted, because even some of the the householders said, well, "Why are you doing sadhana Thakur? He gave you all his grace. Why are you?" And they said, they all replied that we, he, he gave us. He, he gave us those glimpses and he gave us, he opened it up. But we want to, now we want to do it ourselves. We want to make the effort and, and do it. And we want to make, have, be fixed in that. He gave us that tremendous taste and that vision. But we want to be fixed in that. We want to live in that state. Not, you know, not just have a, a glimpse of it or, or, or experience it momentarily. We want to like live in that. And so they did tremendous tapasya. And so... As he said, even in this period of normal consciousness, there was, as he said, quote, a fullness of God in his heart. All around him, wherever he went, nature was, seemed to vibrate with joy. And so, established at last in the consciousness of God, he felt ready to answer the call of worldly duty. And so one day, very suddenly, he went to Calcutta. He goes back. So... <clears throat> and he later, one day, he told Swami Premananda, he said, I was very happy in Vrindavan, but I left 
the holy city to come and live in the monastery here. I want to serve my brothers and mankind. Our master, Sri Ramakrishna, was the embodiment of supreme love and devotion so that our own lives must be such that people all over the world, burdened by earthly sufferings and miseries, may learn to take his holy name and in him find rest and peace. So when Swamiji hears that um, uh, Swami Brahmananda's return to Calcutta, he's very relieved. Because now again the Ramakrishna order is beginning to take shape. So his letters to, to, to Maharaj are full of the spirit of universal service. And then Maharaj in his turn, he, he inspires the brother disciples with that same ideal. All felt an unbounded confidence in Swamiji and Maharaj. Think of the two boys we met in the athletic club. That's boys. And, and very different. Well, they'll, he'll still talk about. All felt an unbounded confidence in Swamiji and Maharaj, but the love of these two for each other was so deep and so spiritual that no one else could fully understand it. Two years after Brahmananda's return from Vrindavan, Swamiji, he comes back from America, and a public reception was prepared for him at a house in Calcutta. And Maharaj, some Brahmananda himself, was the first to welcome his brother back from America, from America, placing a garland of flowers around his neck. Swamiji, in his turn, touched the feet of Maharaj, quoting a saying from the scriptures, the son of a guru is to be regarded as the guru himself, meaning that Brahmananda was the spiritual son of Sri Ramakrishna. Smiling very sweetly, Brahmananda touched the feet and returned the compliment with another quotation, one's elder brother is to be respected like one's father. So, Swamiji was then taken to the Alamazar Monastery. And here he placed in Brahmananda's hands all the money which American devotees had subscribed towards the Indian mission. All this time, he said, I have been acting as a trustee, as a relief to give this back to its real owner, our Raja. The natures of these two friends were wildly dissimilar. And yet, in a sense complementary, in the words of Sri Ramakrishna, Naren dwells in the realm of the absolute, the impersonal. He is like a sharp, drawn sword of discrimination. Rakhal dwells in the realm of God, the sweet one, the repository of all blessed qualities. He is like a child on the lap of his mother, completely surrendering himself to her in every way. Vivekananda was like the flaming fire, the midday sun, burning up all evil and impurity. Brahmananda was like a soft, cool light, soothing the aching heart. Vivekananda was like the deep and restless ocean, always fighting against ignorance and superstition. And Brahmananda was like the blue sky, vast and patient in the spirit. The manner of his working was inward and silent. Swami Prabhupada writes so beautifully. Then, on the first day of May, in 1897, Swamiji, he calls a big meeting. Of all the, all the monastic and all the householder disciples of Sri Ramakrishna. And at this meeting, the organization known as the Ramakrishna Mission was formed. Maharaj was elected president of the Calcutta Center. 
And then later in 1902, just before Swami Vivekananda uh, left the body, um, he was made head of the order. And he held that office for more than 20 years until his own death. And the phenomenal growth of the mission during his lifetime is too well known uh, to need recording here, right, Swami Prabhupada. And as we know, like whenever up until recently this horrible flood in the Himalayas, you know, in June, in, in June, Ramakrishna Mission is there. They are there. They're one of the largest philanthropical organizations in India. The only organization to win the uh, what is it Bharat Ratna Award it was only given to individuals, but it was, they made an exception for the Ramakrishna Mission to give it to an organization. And in emergency relief stations, and all this, all this was building up in the time while Swami Bhavananda was president of the order. And then in 1899, the permanent headquarters of the mission. They went to Baylor, from Alamazar to the Belermat on the Ganga. It's now well known as the Belermat. Foreign visitors to India have spoken highly in appreciation of the mission's success in social service. To the monks of the order, however, such service can only be of secondary importance. Maharaj always insisted on this, quote, The one purpose of life is to know God. Plunge deep into the sea of bliss and become immortals. Attain knowledge and devotion, then serve God and mankind. Work is not the end of life. Disinterested work is a means of attaining devotion. Meditate, meditate, and dive deep within. Know that God alone is real. Keep at least three-fourths of your mind in God. It is enough if you give one-fourth to service, work, and worship. Uh, as president of the order, there's a few scenes that stand out. One in particular, so we'll read Swami Prabhupada describing this. This is very. Maharaj kept a watchful eye on the progress of each member. He turned our hearts continually toward God and directed our actions and the activities of the mission towards the integrating of the inner strength which alone can benefit mankind physically, morally, and spiritually. So when young men of varied temperaments live together, it is only natural that misunderstandings will arise from time to time, no matter how high their common ideal may be. In one of the monasteries, connected with the home of service, there was a number of young untrained members, newly arrived from school and college. When they had been together a while, their old tendencies began to reassert themselves. So they formed rival groups and started to quarrel. This actually happened in, the, the, the ashram is in Varanasi. That's where this happened. A senior Swami of the order went to investigate what was going on. After questioning everyone, he soon found out who were the ringleaders. He then wrote to Swami Brahmananda, telling him that some of those boys were unfit for monastic life, should be expelled. Maharaj replied, don't do anything. I'm coming to see for myself. When Maharaj arrived, he asked no questions. He lived quietly in the monastery, insisting on only one thing, that all the boys should meditate regularly in his presence. 
Then he began to instruct them, making no distinction between good and bad. Gradually, the whole atmosphere of the place changed and improved. The boys forgot their quarrels because they no longer had any time for them. And when Maharaj left, two or three months later, perfect harmony had been restored to the monastery. No one had been expelled. Maharaj recognized his future disciples at first sight and bound them to him at once with an indescribable love. Even as he met them, he knew which spiritual path each should follow. Two young college boys came to visit him. To one of them he said jokingly, let me see your palm. As he looked at it, he remarked, you have the tendency toward worldly enjoyments, but by the Lord's grace, you may be able to um, overcome it. Swami Premananda, who was present, asked Maharaj to look at the other boy's hand also. He replied smilingly, I don't need to. Hearing this, the other boy, who later became known as Swami Yatishwarananda, very great saint in his own right, he felt sad. He thought, my friend has some chance of becoming a monk, but I have none. A few days later, he came alone to visit Maharaj at the Baylor Monastery. He met Swami Brahmananda's personal attendant who told him, Maharaj said that you, Maharaj said that you would become a monk, and indeed he did. A few years later he became a monk, while the other boy married, but remained a devotee. Before Yatishwarananda became a monk, Maharaj told him, Give your body and mind to worldly enjoyments, and the world will destroy them both. <laughs> Devote them to God and His service, and you will enjoy bodily health, peace of mind, and spiritual joy. Hmm. Maharaj, with, and I'm just reading a few excerpts now. Or we'll finish very soon. Maharaj, with his deep insight, knew the strength and weaknesses of each of his disciples. He was always ready to help, but insisted that a disciple should also make some effort. Once I asked him to free my mind. This is Swami Prabhupada. I asked him to free my mind of lust. I could do that for you, he replied. But then, my child, you would lose all the joy of struggle. <laughs> Life would seem insipid. That's one of my <laughs> I could do that for you. And then all the joy of struggle. <clears throat> There's one. Let's see. Let's see where it says this word. And now there'll be, we'll do, there's a few reminiscences. The whole, all of this is in part reminiscences of Swami Prabhupada. But there's some other reminiscences. There's two in particular I want to share. One is Swam, Swami Ambikananda, who was Swami Brahmananda's attendant. And um, this has a beautiful, I love this. So he writes, he, Swami Ambikananda, it's interesting. My parents were devotees of Sri Ramakrishna and often visited him at Dakshineshwar. And during her pregnancy, my mother decided that if a son were born, she would dedicate him to the service of Sri Ramakrishna. Through the grace of the Lord, I was the son born to her. She resolved to keep her promise. One day, when I was a few weeks old, my mother carried me snugly bundled up, up in a sheet to Dakshineshwar. 
My father accompanied us. Sri Ramakrishna, in an ecstatic mood, was standing alone. As soon as he saw my parents, he said to my mother, Hello, what have you brought for me? My mother placed me at the feet of the master and replied, I have brought you this offering. Sri Ramakrishna looked at me for a few moments and remarked, Ah, what a nice child. Are you offering it to me? Good. He took me on his lap, put his right palm on my head as a blessing, and then placed me back in my mother's arms, saying, Take care of this child now, but know that he belongs to me. In due time, I will take him back. Years later, when I joined the Ramakrishna monastery, my mother was the happiest of all, for she felt that Sri Ramakrishna had accepted me. This was after Sri Ramakrishna had passed. As a young boy, I used to visit the monastery at Alambazar with my parents. The Belamat was not yet founded. Swami's Brahmananda, Ramakrishnananda, Shivananda, Turiyananda, and Advaitananda were living there at the time. Sometimes I would stay at the monastery for several days. I thought of Maharaj as being very stern, and I would carefully avoid him. Swami Turiyananda was affectionate toward me, and I felt free with him. The nights I passed in the monastery, I used to sleep in the same room as Swami Turiyananda. He used to wake up at midnight and would wake me also at that time, at that hour, to meditate. After Swami Vivekananda passed away, Maharaj and Swami Turiyananda went to Vrindavan and practiced austerities. A short time after, my father and I went there also. Whenever my father visited the Swamis, I would accompany him. As soon as Swami Turiyananda went, uh, as I knew Swami Turiyananda intimately, I would pass most of my time in his company. Maharaj lived in a room adjoining his. Every time I called on Swami Turiyananda, I would prostrate, prostrate before him, then slowly open the door to Maharaj's room and bow down to Maharaj from the door. I was nervous in his presence, regarding him as a very serious, as very serious and austere, and so would not go inside his room to prostrate or touch his feet. Watching my behavior one day, Swami Turiyananda remarked, What is this? Go in, prostrate before Maharaj and touch his blessed feet. With trepidation in my heart, I entered the room, did as I was told, and then stood silently by Maharaj. He looked at me graciously and said in an affectionate tone, Child, massage my feet. With these words he lay down. I began to massage him, though still nervous. He sensed it immediately and said, Don't be nervous, my son. He touched my back, and with his touch there came a complete transformation in me. I seemed to lose all strength of body and helplessly lay down at his feet. Facetiously, Maharaj said, Ah, you are making a pillow of my feet instead of massaging them. <laughs> my heart was filled with an unspeakable joy. I sat up and said, You have done something to me. Then I began to laugh, being unable to hold the joy within. All my fear was gone. And for the first time, I had a taste of God's love emanating from Maharaj. After that, I heard that Maharaj remarked jokingly to Swami Turiyananda, You see, I have stolen your disciple. <laughs> and at that, Swami Turiyananda laughed and said, Splendid! Now the boy is blessed indeed. And then a short one from Swami Vishuddhananda, who was a president of the order. Very, also, of all of these are, you know, Incredible saints. I was with Maharaj in Banaras. One day he went to the temple of Vishwanath. There were many other persons in the party. As he entered the temple, Maharaj saw a sweeper cleaning the compound. 
Maharaj took the broomstick from the man's hand and began to sweep the place himself. We felt he was showing us that if one goes to a temple to see the deity, one must have this attitude of humility. Seeing Maharaj's example, one of the devotees also began to sweep, but it seemed artificial. What Maharaj did was natural. It looked so beautiful and was so inspiring. On one occasion in the house of Balarambos, Maharaj said, You practice meditation and japam. You progress a little, then comes a period of dryness. It seems that all the doors are entirely closed. At that time it is necessary that you stick to your spiritual practices with infinite patience. By doing... By so doing, you will one day find that all of a sudden, all the doors are opened. What a great joy it is then. In spiritual life, many such thresholds must be crossed. Once Maharaj said to a devotee, When you meditate, you should imagine that God is standing before you like the the mystical wish-fulfilling tree. Another day, he said to the same devotee, At the time of meditation, you should imagine that you are in mid-ocean. On all sides, there are mountain-high waves, and God is standing before you, ready to help you. In Madras, while I accompanied him on a walk, Maharaj said to me, Just do one thing. Always try to remember God. I also do that. In Benares, Maharaj once severely scolded a senior member of the Seva Ashram there for committing a blunder. Afterwards, I asked Maharaj, If you become so displeased with us for our faults, what shall we do? You know we are weak and therefore are liable to make mistakes. At this, Maharaj bit his lip and said, All these things, like my becoming angry, are from the lips and not from within. Once I was massaging Maharaj for a long time. I was tired and felt I could no longer continue. Still, I did not dare say I was tired. All of a sudden it occurred to me. Had I been in the world, I would have had to have worked so hard. And instead, I have the opportunity and privilege to serve Maharaj, and I feel tired. As soon as this thought came to my mind, all fatigue vanished. I felt great strength within. I began to massage Maharaj with double enthusiasm. Just at that moment, a strange thing happened. Maharaj said to me, All right, that's enough. You need not massage me anymore. Maharaj could read the hearts of people. He had been testing me. And just a few things of his teachings, and then we'll stop for just a few minutes. How, the question they ask Maharaj, how may I check a distracting thought that persistently arises in my mind? Swami Brahmananda says, Think to yourself, this thought is immensely harmful to me. It will be my ruin. Impress the idea again and again upon your mind. The mind is extremely susceptible to suggestions and will learn whatever you teach it. Therefore, if through discrimination you can impress upon it the joy and and fullness of the spiritual life and the folly of worldly attachments, it will devote itself more and more to God and you will free yourself from all distracting thoughts. The supreme ideal of life, of human life, is to know God. Everyone must have this ideal firmly established in his life, and the ideal must never be lowered. He, quote, who is smaller than the smallest and greater than the greatest, shines forth always and everywhere. He dwells within all beings, great and small. He dwells in the plants and herbs. He dwells everywhere in greater or lesser manifestation. Make that one supreme, all-pervading spirit your ideal. Even after a little effort, 
to realize him and you will see what fun it is. You will find in him the inexhaustible fountain of joy. You have seen enough of one side of life, now see the other side, the real side. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. A veil is hiding that reality. Remove that veil and you will find him. If you apply yourself to the attainment of this ideal, the whole world will be transformed for you. Maharaj, I have tried in various ways to control my senses, but I have not succeeded. How can I do this? Maharaj says, If you merely say, I will conquer lust, I will conquer anger and greed, you can never conquer them. But if you can fix your mind on God, the passions will leave you of themselves. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, The more you move eastward, the farther you are from the west. Call on God and pray to Him. The objects of sense will no longer attract you. Your way of practicing japam and meditation is very superficial. If you practice casually, devoting only one or two hours a day to meditation, you cannot find God. Lose yourself day and night in His contemplation, in singing His praises and glory. Only then will you be blessed with His vision. Dive deep, my children, dive deep. Do not waste your time. In the primary stage, the aspirant should slowly but steadily increase his hours of meditation. Otherwise, if because of momentary enthusiasm he suddenly tries to increase his hours of meditation, he will find the reaction difficult to bear. He will become depressed and then he will lose the power to meditate. It is is a difficult task to lift a depressed mind and turn it back to spiritual practices. God's grace is supreme. Without it, nothing is achieved. Pray to him unceasingly for his grace. Prayer is efficacious. He lovingly hears your prayers. Hold on for a little while. Do not give up your mind to the objects of desire. You must exercise great self-control in everything. Objects of desire, they will follow you like slaves. Then, through his grace, you will find that you have no desire for them, nor will you feel any attachment to them. And he's he's talking to the, the monks here. You have embraced the monastic life, renouncing everything. It does not become you to try to exercise authority over others. That brings great bondage. Whatever you do, know that it is the Lord's work you are doing. Look upon everything and everybody as belonging to Sri Ramakrishna. Being deluded by egotism, man thinks himself to be the doer. He's quoting the Gita, and that was what M chose as the little epigram for that section last week in the Katamrit. To tell a lie... Again, truth. To tell a lie is the greatest sin. A drunkard or a man who frequents houses of ill fame may be trusted, but never a liar. It is the blackest of sins. Never find fault or criticize others. Such a habit is harmful to yourself. By thinking continually of the evil of others, the evil will impress itself upon your own mind, and the good that is in you will be overshadowed. Play with God. Sing His glory. Enjoy the fun. Why should you criticize others? Associate with everybody freely. Be happy with them. Do not indulge in gossip. Only a wicked-hearted man bruises himself finding fault with others. Keep yourself pure and go forward, following your own ideal. Learn to see the good in others. If a man has some goodness, exaggerate his goodness in your mind. Give honor to all, praise all. Do this and sympathy for others will grow. He himself is honored who honors all beings. 
Never run down a fellow man or slight him. Everyone sees the fault in others. Give him your love. Make him your own and help him to overcome his weakness. A man is composed of both good and evil. It is easy to see the evil in others, but a holy man is he who can overlook the evil qualities and help them to become pure and holy. Remember, my children, you are holy men. You must always be calm, gentle, modest, and kindly of speech. Goodness and purity must flow through every word you utter, every action you perform, through all your behavior and movements. I bless you, my children, that whosoever associates with you will find peace of heart. The sleeping God will awaken within them. What are the spiritual disciplines? Always be truthful, be self-controlled, watch your speech, envy no one, hate no one, be jealous of no one, practice chastity. If one remains continent for twelve years, he attains the highest. It is wise to go occasionally to the places of pilgrimage and live there for some time. The holy atmosphere and change of scenery are aids to the health of the body and mind. These places are conducive to meditation. The heart must be purified. The world is full of pitfalls. Effort must be your motto if you want to grow spiritually. Keep watch over every small desire which arises and control it. Strengthen the will and everything else will be simple. And then last one tonight. Question. Maharaj. I cannot do anything by myself. Bless me that I may have faith in you and in the Lord. Bless me that I may understand your grace and have it always. Swami Brahmananda said, Never lose faith in yourself. The Lord will do everything for you. Have faith in Him. Repeat His name. He will reveal the truth to you. Do not be restless. Have patience and go on struggling. Struggle and you will surely reach the reality. Waste no more precious, precious time and unnecessary thoughts or metaphysical speculations. Pray to the Lord that cravings may never arise in you. The Lord's grace shines upon all. Strive a little and your eyes will open to His grace. Why did God create us? So that we may love Him. Thank you all for your kind attention. Jai Ma, Jai Maharaj Ji, Jai Guru.